and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is June the 1st, 2023. It's late in the afternoon. It's four in the afternoon on the West Coast. It's already June 2nd elsewhere. It's been a long week. What one might call a deadly week. We began the week talking with Elise Lonan on why women should indulge their sinful sides. Elise has a new book out on our best behavior, The Seven Deadly Sins and the Price Women Pay to Be Good. Elise goes back to the pre-Christian world and suggests that the Christians are to blame for if not persecuting, certainly repressing the instincts and the sensuality of women. And we are ending also with seven deadly sins, also in a kind of Christian sense. Um, my guest today, Alex Rivchin, has a new book out, The Seven Deadly Myths, Antisemitism from the Time of Christ to Kanye West. And Alex is joining us from Sydney, Australia, where it is already June the 2nd. Uh, Alex, welcome. Uh, was there anti-Semitism, do you think, before the time of Christ? Why did you begin from the time of Christ? Well, I wanted to show the length and breadth of the history of anti-Semitism. That's why I began with the time of Christ and going through to Kanye West, which is very much the here and now. Um, did anti-Semitism exist before the birth of Christianity? Um, it certainly did. Uh, and it began largely with the, the Greeks and the Romans that fell upon the Jewish Commonwealth and sought to oppress and assimilate the people. Uh, and the refusal of the Jews to pray to foreign gods and rulers and their stubborn revolts, which they launched in response to this, uh, was an early source of animosity. But many of the libels and myths surrounding the Jews and the conspiracy theories, which this book deals with, began from that early schism between Christianity and Judaism and also Islam. So it wasn't to say specifically that anti-Semitism began at that time, it did precede it, but I wanted to show the longevity and the continuity of anti-Semitism. Alex, would it be fair to say that um, historically at least, uh, the, the Islamic world was much more sympathetic to the Jewish people than the, the Christian world? On balance, I'd say that's accurate. Jews generally fared better in the Islamic world than they did in Christian society. But that was really to a limited extent. It was as long as they knew their place as being inferior to their Muslim lords um, and they were subjected to taxation, they had to wear ridiculous clothing, there were rafts of laws imposed against them. Uh, for example, in Iran, there was a law that said that Jews couldn't walk in the rain for fear that their uncleanliness would wash off and dirty the shoes of the Muslims. Uh, they were subject to sporadic massacres. So, uh, you know, when you look at what happened in the Christian world, the abject carnage, um, you know, it was on a greater scale than what happened in the Islamic world. But I think people are very quick to erase or ignore what happened to Jews in the Islamic world. They didn't fare much better there. I mean, the history of human beings is one of persecution and hatred and mass murders of one kind or another. Yeah. Are you suggesting in the seven deadly myths that um, anti-Semitism is different or worse than other antis, whether anti-blacks, anti-women, anti-Christian, anti-Muslim, 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 anti-Muslim
American or anti-Australian. I mean, most people are anti-something or other. What is it about being against the Jews that, for you at least, is special? Because the Jews, well, of course, um, have been characterized fairly or unfairly as defining yeah. themselves as special. So some people might suggest that uh, this idea of anti-Semitism being special um, actually feeds anti-Semitism. Well, look, the, the book doesn't seek to compare it to other forms of hatred um, or to try and create a hierarchy of what was worse. I mean, certainly some things have been worse in history and some groups have suffered more than others. Um, Australians generally do fairly well in the world. Uh, the Jews have suffered immensely. Uh, but what I was more seeking to do was to show the uniqueness of anti-Semitism, not to show that, you know, it should be privileged above other forms of hatred. On the, co on the contrary, I think that anti-Semitism is too often erased and downplayed and dismissed. And I want to put it on the same plane as other forms of hatred. But there are many things about anti-Semitism which do make it unique. And one of those, and this is really the focus of the book, is the method of its transmission and the way that the subject, the Jew, is characterized. So in forms of bigotry and hatred and racism of, of all other kinds, the subject is invariably characterized as being inferior. Um, but with the Jew, they are characterized both as being inferior, and we saw the end point of that with Nazism, which successfully branded the Jews as being vermin, fit for extermination. But they're also characterized as being malevolently superior, as having this cunning brain which they use to enslave the world. So there are aspects of it which are unique, um, but particularly its transmission through conspiracy theories. There's a lesson in that both in terms of combating anti-Semitism and in confronting conspiracy theories generally and understanding where they lead and how they degrade societies. But it was funny, uh, Char um, uh, not Charles, uh, Alex. Uh, uh, last year, I had a, a distinguished scholar, Charles Dalheim, on the, on the show. I think he teaches at NYU or at Columbia. He's a New York-based scholar. And he has a new book out, How Jews Made the Art World Modern. I remember when I saw... The cover of the book, I thought maybe this is a little bit anti-Semitic, the idea of Jews making the art world modern. Uh, but his argument was that European Jews and American Jews, for better or worse, have been enormously influential in the formation of modern art, both in business and intellectual terms. Yeah. Is that, And we have to be really careful here, and you're very sophisticated and subtle in this area. But would it be fair to say, can one say, that the Jews aren't like other people without falling into anti-Semitism? Well, look, they're, they're not like other people. There are things which make the Jewish people distinct. Um, the fact that they've been around for 4,000 years, the fact that they've seen off great empires and oppressors, whereas those empires and oppressors themselves have disappeared from the face of the earth, the fact that the Jews were the first people to cease the worship of idols and many gods, and find belief in a single all-powerful divinity that then gave birth to Christianity and Islam as derivatives of Judaism. Um, so, you know, the Jewish people have their unique characteristics in terms of our culture and traditions, where we come from, our experiences as a people living in a homeland and then living for 2,000 years in exile and now living in both. So there's nothing wrong with showing that the Jews are a distinct people. Um, I, I certainly would argue with that, but it's how they're, they're characterized and how any group is characterized. Um, you know, if they're given common, malevolent, dark traits, uh, if their successes and achievements and contributions to humanity are ignored, but any perceived harm from them is highlighted and targeted, then I think that shows a bad faith.
you say that the Jews have lived in exile, but they don't, they haven't historically thought of themselves as living in exile, have they? Not all of them, anyway. What does that well, mean, living in exile from what? From their homeland from which they were forcibly evicted by the Romans in the year 135 CE. So prior to that point, they lived as a people in their own land and developed a civilization within that land. Then they were conquered by the Romans and lost it and were scattered throughout the vast lands of the Roman Empire. And in that state, they lived for, as I said, for 2,000 years until the formation of the modern state of Israel in 1948. And they did, by and large, view themselves as in exile. They knew where they had come from and they knew to where they were trying to return and, and restore their sovereignty and self-determination. But at the same time, their prophets, Jeremiah in particular, urged them in exile to contribute to the lands in which they lived, to see them as a part of their societies, to understand that the, the security and success of the society is their security and success. So they've juggled being good citizens and being integrated and productive, but still knowing that they're a distinct people and knowing from where they came and to where they must return. Yeah, I have to admit I'm, I'm not convinced by that, but, you know, this is an age-old historical debate. Um, well, what no, well, I, I, sorry? What doesn't convince you? Well, I just I just don't believe that the Jews historically have believed they lived in exile. They just lived for one one way or the other, usually because they didn't have the luxury of, of thinking about exile. But that's another issue, and, and you know more about this than I do. Um, I, I'm curious, you, you said you're from Australia, and, and I think one of the, the points which is remarkable about the Jews is, as you suggest, their resilience. Mm. Um, you know, in Australia an entire people was wiped out as in North America and elsewhere. What is it about the Jews in your view, Alex, that has made them so resilient as survivors? Because most peoples, I mean, many peoples historically since say the time of Christ, where you begin your book 2000 years ago, I mean, they've just disappeared. They've been yeah. murdered or they've lost their identity and faith yeah. or got mixed in with other people. What is it about the Jews that has allowed them to survive? It's, a, it's an excellent question, and a lot of theories are advanced about it. I believe that it's the view of the Jews of our place in the world as being one of to bring light to the world, to have a specific mission, uh, to celebrate life and have a deep love of life and to cherish life and existence. And look, I know that's common to all peoples. I mean, that sounds a bit vague to me. I know a lot no, of no, miserable no, no. Jews. Look, look, look. I, you know, I'd like to point to one thing and say that it's because of this the Jews have survived and endured. Um, but it's not possible to do that because they've been through everything that man can throw at his fellow, and they've survived and they've remained. Whereas others, as you've rightly pointed out, have disappeared among the peoples where they'd come to live, and were effectively heard of no more. Um, but, you know, I think it's the fact that we were the first monotheistic people and that gave us a, a mission and a purpose, something that we felt we had to perpetuate and keep alive. Um, but it's not just that belief in one God, it's the ethics that come from that. It's the belief that we need to spread the, the ethics and morality of monotheism. Um, that's given Jews a sense of mission, uh, something that's too valuable to just relinquish. So I think that's one thing and that's why Jews have participated so much in all political movements, um, in all trends in society, they're highly active because they have this restless energy. They, they want to contribute things. Um, but look, you know, it, it, it's a mystery why the Jews have survived. Whereas I, I wonder whether if you sort of, excusing this rather crude metaphor, you live by the sword, you die by it in the sense that 
the reason the Jews have survived is because they have historically at least been a very closed society. They, they haven't been particularly evangelical. They haven't been particularly open, uh, which gives them their resiliency and at the same time compounds their mystery and all the bizarre mythology that you talk about in your book. So the two go together. In other words, it would be hard to survive if these deadly mythologies weren't somehow perpetuated around you. Yeah, look, it, it's commonly said that the Jews need anti-Semitism to survive, that it's that condition of being hated that makes us seek the company of our fellows um, and to band together and to move forward. But I, I agree in part with your proposition in terms of the fact that the Jews aren't a proselytizing people. We haven't sought to convert at the sword as other faiths have, have sought to do. Um, you know, if people want to come to Judaism, then they're accepted, but we don't encourage conversion. We think that everyone has a purpose in the world and ours is to live as Jews and others is to live as non-Jews and that's entirely fine. But I, I don't quite accept that we've been kind of closed as a society. We've been as open as we've been allowed to be. So when in Europe we were confined to ghettos and shut out and barred from professions and holding public office and appearing in public during certain times of the year, that obviously forced Jews to only consort with their own. They had no choice. But when they were allowed out, when the ghetto walls were torn down by Napoleon and they enjoyed greater freedoms and emancipation in Europe in the 16th and the 17th century and onwards, then they participated fully in all aspects of society. So... I, I see the central thread of your point that the way the Jews have been treated has almost played into their hands. Um, it's created this kind of fortress mentality and allowed them to survive in that way. Yeah, people watching this, Alex, will think all Jews have swimming pools. But of course, the swimming pool behind you isn't a real pool. It's your background, right? It's true, but I do have a pool. Oh, you do? It's not that particular pool. Is I'm it sure. true all Jews have swimming pools? It's absolutely true. It's written in Deuteronomy somewhere, maybe somewhere towards the end. I think God gave all Jews swimming pools. Exactly. Um, in all seriousness, Alex, your book covers the seven deadly myths, and I want to get into one or two of them. Anti-Semitism from the time of Christ to Kanye West. Now, clearly, the anti-Semitism at the time of Christ was heightened, and particularly Christ himself as a Jew and as someone very controversial within the Jewish community that created another faith. Clearly, there was remarkably violent anti-Semitism. I was in Turkey last week. I just went to the, the supposed home of, Mag of Mary Magdalene uh, outside Ephesus, so I'm quite familiar with that. But can one compare the anti-Semitism in the time of Christ or in the Middle Ages or the Crusaders or, of course, the Nazis with some joker like Kanye West? Well, I mean, why do you include him in the title in particular, in the well, subtitle? The, the thing that intrigued me about Kanye West, you know, you refer to him as a joker. I don't see him that way. I mean, people have dismissed Well, an unfunny him. joker. With someone no, 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 no. I, I know that's not what you're saying, but as, as a buffoon, really. And some people have characterized him as such. Others have said that he suffers from some mental defects. But when you look closely at what he actually said, at the accusations he leveled at the Jews, at the time in his life that this all kind of bubbled to the surface at the way that he sought to really spread his message, it's, it's really indicative of how anti-Semitism has thrived and spread throughout history. So when you look closely at what he said, you know, he accused the Jews of being obsessed with money. 
He accused the Jews of controlling entire industries. He accused the Jews of enslaving blacks. Uh, he accused the Jews of spreading filth and pornography. I mean, these are the same accusations that Henry Ford made against the Jews, that Hitler made against the Jews, that have been made against the Jews for time immemorial. And the manner in which he spread them, again, it seems kind of haphazard and opportunistic. Um, but, you know, historically required works of art and poetry and stories and books to be printed and distributed slowly throughout the world for these, you know, canards about Jewish bloodthirstiness and evil to spread. Kanye West used what was accessible to him, an enormous platform, you know, the ears of millions and millions of ordinary people around the world. Um, and he broadcast his message through his videos and his tweets and his podcast and, so, and um, media tour that hung on his every word for weeks and weeks and weeks. And I think he did enormous damage. And to dismiss him as being, you know, insane. Well, it, or, it, well, explain what damage he, he did. How many people did he convince? And what did he convince them of? That all Jews run the that Jews own slaves or that Jews run the entertainment business? Well, look, we, we can't know immediately what impact it had in, in real time. Well, you just said that he had, that he, you can't have it both ways. I mean, no, what no, did no, he no, do? No. What damage no, did he do? What, what I'm saying is, is that millions and millions of, we know that he's one of the most influential recording artists of the last decade. We know that he has an enormous platform. We know that when he tweets something, immediately millions of people around the world see it. We know that the mainstream media then picked up on his messages and broadcasted and then podcasts hosted him. And he repeated these things over and over again for a period of weeks. It wasn't a simple tweet that disappeared into the ether. He's a highly influential person and that shouldn't be dismissed or downplayed. Whether he actually convinced people, we don't know. We, we can't say that for sure. But knowing how gullible people have been to anti-Semitism, how susceptible they are to these sorts of conspiracy theories, seeing the various anti-Semitic outliers like the Nation of Islam, uh, or the Goyim Defense League, the far right, the far left, radical Islam, all these groups cheering him and celebrating and then seeking to amplify him and ride on his coattails. They clearly saw something in him, uh, something effective in what he was doing. I think truly we won't know the full impact of what he did for some time. But the fact that young students in Sydney, Australia um, and throughout the world have seen this and have taken it on and think it's humorous or maybe there's something to it, and some have celebrated him as this heroic truth teller standing up to the Jews. I think he would have convinced a lot more people than, you know, demagogues and, and propagandists did in the past, just because of his effectiveness and his reach. But where's the concrete evidence? And, and, and what's your take? I mean, this is, again, a very controversial subject. Um, you just wrote something um, in the New York Post, suggesting that today's anti-Semitism, you call the future of anti-Semitism, is the title, distinct from other forms of hatred, is already here. You're suggesting that it's, what is it, the same or different or more virulent or, or more dangerous? I mean, what's your core you, argument here? You mean the anti-Semitism now as opposed to in the yeah. past? Um, look, I'm not saying that it's more virulent than in the past. And you referred to the Crusades and, you know, early Christianity, uh, you know, and the massacres that were carried out against the Jews. Fortunately, we don't see that so much now, though it does happen. You know, in 2018, we had the Pittsburgh Synagogue Massacre where... Yeah, you can't compare this Pittsburgh Synagogue Massacre to the Crusades or to the no, 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 elimination no. Of, of, of Spanish or Portuguese Jews. I'm not, I'm not, I, I never... You referred to them, not, not me. I'm not seeking to make right. any comparisons. But what I am saying is that anti-Semitism has existed. It continues to exist. And as I wrote about in the article that you referenced in the post, 
it continues to infect minds. And you look at the image there that was just on the screen of the killer from Allen, Texas. Uh, he was steeped in anti-Semitism and anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. And that was one of the things that tipped him over the edge, seemingly, into carrying out a, a horrific massacre. Um, not targeting Jews per se, but that's the nature of anti-Semitism. It's not merely the Jews that suffer for it. So the, the point that the argument, the article was making is that anti-Semitism is here, that it's diverse, it comes from very, many forms and various ideologies and movements, but it has a certain continuity and a tenacity, and it's the way that the Jew is perceived. And that comes from this mythology that this book deals with. So that we still see today. The view of the Jew as being bloodthirsty and all-powerful and cunning and malevolent and treacherous and disloyal, all of these things that animated the Crusaders and the Spanish Inquisition and the Nazis, they're still here today. And that's not to compare what's happening today with those times, but the mythology and the propaganda and the lies about the Jews, they persist. Is, I mean, the way you presented all these myths, I mean, don't white people have the same mythology about blacks, neighbors, Serbs about Croats, Croats about Serbs, Russians about Ukrainians, Ukrainians about Russians? Isn't it just the mythology of the outsider, fetishizing them, treating them as both simultaneously, as you say, subhuman and superior and all-powerful? I mean, Donald Trump seems to do that all the time, and he barely mentions the Jews. Look, I, I don't think... He's even got a Jewish son-in-law. Yeah, I mean, the Donald Trump is a different character entirely. I don't, I don't think it's right to say that all peoples view others as being inferior and superior and this and that. I think that the, the canards and the myths around the Jews are fairly unique. But what you're saying is that racism is common. And with that, I agree. I think people you know, feel prejudice, um, you know, they're drawn to hatred and often horrific acts in the name of that. But again, when you look at how long anti-Semitism has been around for, what it has done, you know, the carnage that it's inflicted, the diversity of its sources, it's not merely, as you say, Russians and Ukrainians who live in close quarters in complex political surrounds. Um, anti-Semitism has spread globally as a phenomenon and it continues to do so. So, you know, there are aspects of it that are, I suppose, common to all prejudices in the fact that it looks at an other, at a group, and it seeks to malign them. But the way that it's perceived, you know, the way that it's transmitted and what's been inflicted in the same throughout history is unique. It's not the same as the other hatreds that you've mentioned. Uh, it was interesting. This morning there was a piece in The Guardian, you may have seen it, about English football taking a stand against anti-Semitism. It's a very yeah. controversial subject. Your book comes blurb by David Baddiel, who's an English mm -hmm. comic and very outspoken on this issue. What's your take on whether, um, on whether uh, people should embrace the Y word? It's a huge debate in England. Uh, Arsenal Football Club, which also has a lot of Jewish fans, um, yeah. dug up some anti-Semitic messages. Uh, the, yeah. the, 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 their rival Tottenham uh, are defined as the Jewish club and they've embraced yeah. the Y word. What's your take yeah. on that? Is this compounding the, the, the seven deadly myths or is it another subject entirely? Well, look, you know, David Bedil, uh is a Chelsea, he's a Chelsea fan, right? And like, like me, I was a member of Chelsea Football Club when I lived in London. So yeah, you you know, are. I okay. yeah. So I know something about this and, you know, I've and, and Chelsea is particularly odd in the sense that there are loads of 
wealthy Jews who support the club. And at the same time, they have the worst elements of Nazism and anti-Semitism. The Jews I know in London who support Chelsea actually amused by the whole thing when they when they uh, when they make fun of the Holocaust. So I'm not sure how serious. My question on all this, in all seriousness, um, yeah. uh, Alex, is really how serious is all this? When Tottenham fans chant Yid Army and yeah. Arsenal fans chant silly things about the yeah. Jews, is yeah. this really? An equivalent of the Crusades or of Jesus? No, 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 it's not an equivalent, and no one would suggest that. David Badil certainly wouldn't suggest that. I've sat in the stands at Stamford Bridge during Tottenham games and Arsenal games, and I've heard some ugly chants and comments from fellow fans, which are deeply unpleasant, you know. Um, you know, is it so serious that it requires a campaign? Um Perhaps, you know, people can make up their own minds about that. What, what point I think David Badil was trying to make, and this is the thesis of his book, Jews Don't Count, is that whereas other forms of prejudice have been identified and have been purged from civil society, from polite society, anti-Semitism persists. And no one at a football game would chant about packies as was done in the past and just would not be acceptable now, or to chant the N-word and there was hor horrific you know, anti-black abuse in football in the 80s and 90s. And that fortunately doesn't typically exist anymore. But you can chant about Yids and that's seemingly acceptable. And some of it is lighthearted and some of it is led by non-Jewish Tottenham fans themselves. You know, as you said, they call themselves the Yid Army because they're based in North London, which is a historically Jewish neighborhood. But a lot of it is really nasty. When you chant in the tube um, on the way back from the stadium about Jews being gassed, that's not pleasant. I've been there in that situation. It's not pleasant. It's not good sport and good fun and good banter. And it should be driven out from society. And one of the dangerous things is that these things become so normalized and so casualized that they then become ingrained in the psyche, that they, be, they become passed on and normal. And I've seen young Chelsea fans chanting horrific things. Um, and that's when it does spread and become something more malevolent. In most cases, it doesn't go further. In most cases, it's just, you know, a bit of football banter and lighthearted, but often it's not. But I think what David Badil is saying with this, I firmly agree, is that the same standard that's applied to other ethnic groups should be applied to the Jews. If you can't chant about other ethnicities, you shouldn't be chanting about Jews. Um, just on Chelsea Football Club, there are some very nasty elements there. As I've said, I've seen them myself. But the club, particularly under its previous owner, Roman Abramovich, invested considerably in combating anti-Semitism through a wide range of initiatives. And I think they've done a fine job, and I think it requires that sort of in engagement. Um, and David Badil has been fantastic as well. Yeah, I, 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 some of the my least favorite Jews are Chelsea fans, but <laughs> I shouldn't say that publicly, but I have done. I'll probably get stoned or something for that. Um, Alex, uh, you've authored a number of other books. You wrote a book about... Uh, Zionism, a concise history, uh, and you also have the anti-Israel agenda. Uh, I have a show coming up tomorrow to sort of balance this sort of thing with Anthony Lowenstein, well, another Australian uh, who has a book yeah. out, The Palestine Laboratory, How Israel yeah. Exports the Technology of Occupation Around the World. I don't suppose you and he are going out to dinner very often in Australia, but... Um, no, it'd be hard to hold a meal down in his company. Yeah, and he'd probably say the same about you. But anyway, um, in all seriousness, how does... And this is why I picked up on your 
what I what I detected at least was a, a sort of a, a narrative of Zionism historically within the Jewish community is how has the Israel issue changed all this? Because I, I do think that in terms of the hostility against Jews, there's so much mixing up of hostility against Israel and Jews. And, and can one, Alex, and this is an, another endless debate which never gets resolved, can one be a critic of the state of Israel and not be against the Jews, not be guilty of anti-Semitism? Look, the answer to that is, of course, uh, you know, Israel's a country like any other and, you know, it can be judged and criticised by its policies and actions like any other, and particularly it's a country that's in a conflict and a country that periodically goes to war, and it's perfectly reasonable to scrutinise that. But some unique things happen when Israel is discussed that don't occur with other countries. Um, you know, the relentless criticism, the extent of the criticism, um, the, the sort of language that's used that's used against no other country. So I'm critical of many countries in the world. You know, I detest the Iranian regime. You know, I detest them for the way they treat the Baha'i people, for the way they suppress human rights in their own country, for their glorification of Holocaust denial, for the way they treat women, all of these things. But at no point would I think to deny the rights of the Persian people to a state, call them illegitimate, call for the destruction of the country. There's no difficulty with me or any other person in separating between matters of policy and matters of the state and the nature of the country generally. But with Israel, it all gets tangled up. Um, you know, a conversation that begins with settlements and proportionality in Gaza frequently devolves into a conversation about whether Israel has a right to exist. A right to exist doesn't get discussed in the context of virtually any other country in the world. Well, but Alex, yeah, I don't want to turn this into another Israel debate, but you know as well as I do that it's different in Israel because of its history over the last hundred years, that it's it's not just another country, for better or worse. Look, I mean, many countries were born out of conflict. You know, you look at, in 1991, the breakup of the Soviet Union, the collapse of Yugoslavia. Um, yeah, but, that, but those are, we're not talking about the breakup. We're talking about a, a major migration of people who, who weren't there in, as you say, they had a 2,000-year-old holiday or exile yeah. and then they came back and a lot of people suggest that they had no right. But that's another issue. So coming back to Israel, let's end with ways of dealing with these seven deadly myths. I don't think anyone would think they're good things, not even Chelsea fans, probably Arsenal fans would. But apart from Arsenal, um, uh, Biden has launched his national strategy to counter anti-Semitism. I'm not sure Joe Biden can kill the seven deadly myths. How are we supposed to deal with this? Is it education, Alex? Look, education is critical. I think people would agree with that, but it's got to be the right kind of education. And in, in my view, too much education about anti-Semitism has focused on teaching of the Holocaust. And the Holocaust is mm. worth examination and study, no doubt. Um, and I've been a, a champion of that for a long time. And yeah, and I, I'm guessing in that sense, you're in the same camp as Dara Horn. She was on the show. She has a very interesting book out, People yeah. Love Dead Jews, Report yeah. from a Haunted Present. So you suggest, like Dara, that we need to get beyond the Holocaust? Well, the trouble with teaching anti-Semitism through the lens of the Holocaust is that, firstly, it makes it look like it's a right-wing thing alone. But more than that, it makes it look like it's something historical, something that ended in ancient history for most young kids, 
for whom World War II is ancient history um, and that it's not a continuing hatred and matter of concern. So I think that the way it needs to be taught, and, and I see hope in what Biden has proposed, is teaching this mythology, showing people the conspiracy theories, the stereotypes through which anti-Semitism flourishes and is transmitted. I think that needs to happen. And the Holocaust should be part of that story, not the lead of that story. And can the Jewish community itself do anything? I mean, we're not blaming them. It would be wrong, of course, to blame the victim. But can or what should Jews do to address these seven deadly myths? Not go in the entertainment business? No, I I think they should go into every business that they choose to be. Get rid of their swimming pools, Alex? No, I think we should build bigger swimming pools. And um, (laughs) I'm putting the development application for that very purpose. But look, I I think that the best thing that Jews can do is engage with non-Jews. And one thing that comes up regularly in statistics and polling is that the more that people actually know Jews and have interaction with Jews, the the more favorably disposed they are. They see them as human beings. And this mythology around them falls away. You can't have both the mythological Jew and the real flesh and blood Jew in the same place. They, They can't coexist. So the more that people see real Jews for all their diversity and craziness and goodness and badness and stupidity and cleverness, you know, the better. And those myths start to crumble and fall away. Where these myths really started to take hold was when Jews were shut out from society, when they had no power to speak and engage with the people around them. That's the circumstance in which myths generally thrive the most. So the more that Jews can be engaged in society and interact with non-Jews, the better. And probably stop supporting Chelsea Football Club, right? That wouldn't hurt, especially this year. <laughs>